will read it for us. As you turn there, this is a point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus transitions and develops his sermon. Chapter 7 transitions to a focus more on the judgment of God for those who do not truly love and follow the Lord. The last verse of chapter 6 says, do not worry or be anxious, while the first verse of chapter 7 says, do not judge. Both worry and judging are negative attitudes. Worry is a negative attitude about our own affairs. Judgment is a negative attitude about others. So Jesus has a connection here in mind. Let's read and then we'll dive into our sermon. Judge not that you, not be, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning thankful that you are our God and our Savior. Thank you that though our sins are many, your grace and mercy is so much more. Thankful that though we deserve judgment, you have given us grace, forgiveness, life. Thank you for your word. Please speak to us through it now, we pray. Holy Spirit, be present in this message, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For the past 50 to 60 years of modern American history, many have argued for a more tolerant, less judgmental society. I'm sure you have noticed this as well. With, the aim, with this aim in view, many have championed the idea of less restrictive laws, rules, and regulations. However, is our society any less judgmental today than 50 to 60 years ago? Is it less judgmental than previous generations and times and places? I would argue that we are not, because it is natural for sinful, fallen, broken humans to judge each other. That's what we do. It's like the air we breathe. We judge those around us. We judge people for so much. The clothes they wear, the car they drive, the job they have, the performance in their job, the house they live in, the college you attend, the grades you get in school, your sports teams, the ones you cheer for and the ones that you're on, the political parties and points of view that we each have. So many things we judge one another based on the outside, judge one another based on how we act. More and more individuals today in America judge Christians for having a traditional biblical understanding of sex, marriage, family life, and so much more. We are a judgmental people. We live in a broken, sinful world. It is easy for us to see the sin of others and judge them. It can be very difficult to have charity mercy, grace towards others when we see their sin and failures. We judge others for their sins while making excuses for ourselves, for our own sin. 
Or we judge people for simple differences in style, preferences, culture, or many other differences. Differences which the Bible often has nothing to say about. And so Jesus says in our passage, judge not that you be not judged. This is similar to another sermon Jesus delivered in Luke 6 called the Sermon on the Plain because he delivered it on a flat ground. In that passage, Luke 6, Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. In all of these passages, there is an individual in mind that is doing the judging, the condemning, the forgiving. It is God. Judge not, and you will not be judged by God. Forgive, and you will be forgiven by God, is the implicit idea here. And that's not just clear here in our passage, it's clear throughout the Bible. God is the righteous judge, the one who saves or destroys. And so in Exodus 33, when the people of Israel, right after they had been saved out of slavery in Egypt, were taken out of Egypt, they set up a false god, a golden calf, and they worshiped that golden calf. And God said, I'm going to destroy Israel in my wrath. And Moses pled on behalf of them, prayed on behalf of them, please, God, be merciful. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Our God is a God of mercy and grace. So the idea that we're going to look at today is that God, the righteous judge, saves or condemns, and so we should imitate his mercy and grace. God, the righteous judge, saves or condemns, and so we should imitate his mercy and grace. And we're going to unpack this idea through three points, the righteous judge, judgment, and merciful discernment. Righteous judge, judgment, and merciful discernment. If you can't hear it in my voice, the second one has a question. Judgment? First, in our passage, we see that Jesus points the reality that God, his Father, is a righteous judge. In our passage, there's actually no mention of God the Father. His name does not appear, does it? But implicit throughout is the concept of individuals being judged by someone, right? And so verses 1 and 2, we read, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The idea present here is that God is judging and measuring us, right? Who is the only one who can judge? This is God, the Father, the one who created everything, the maker of heaven and earth, and therefore the one who has every right to judge us. God is the creator of everything, the king of the universe, He is a righteous judge, and the Bible is abundantly clear in so many places about this. Listen as I read a couple of them. In Genesis 18, in the early days of Abraham's life, when Abraham was wandering and his nephew Lot settled in Sodom and Gomorrah, God came to him and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they are doing evil and wicked things in my sight. Abraham spent a whole chapter praying to God, begging God to relent and be merciful specifically for his nephew Lot. And Abraham says in Genesis 18, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
Abraham knew God is a just judge. In Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses, as he is about to die and the people of God are going to go into the promised land, Moses praises God in a song that he wrote saying, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Our God is a God of righteousness and justice. In Psalm 56, the people of God praise the Lord. The heavens declare God's righteousness, for God himself is judge. Our God is a righteous, good judge. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews reflects, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The concept of God being a just and righteous judge is present throughout the Bible. This is just a few verses that I could have read to you, but we only have so much time. The Bible is abundantly clear. God is a righteous judge. As the maker and king of everything, he can rightfully judge his creation and whether we have behaved in an appropriate or inappropriate sinful manner. The fact that God is a righteous, good, just judge should cause us, honestly, to be terrified, right? If God is righteous and good and just, and we know ourselves, then what should our response be? Left without any hope? We should be terrified because we should know that we have sinned against others. We have sinned against God, probably today, if we're honest. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's right and good standard. We have not loved God or our neighbors as ourselves. We have selfishly sinned again and again and again. We justly stand accused and condemned. In God's court, standing before his judgment seat, all we can say is, yes, the record against us is right. But that, thankfully, is not the end of the story, is it? Because our God is a righteous judge, but he is also abundantly merciful, gracious, and loving. And so our good, loving, forgiving Father sent Jesus, his Son, as our Savior to take the death we deserved for our sins, to die in our place, and take the judgment we need on our behalf. The righteous judge is also a good, gracious, forgiving father. And so Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this passage, says, God is both father and judge. The terrible thing for the unbeliever is that he is both. In rejecting God's judgment on his life, the unbeliever also rejects the privilege of having him as his father. In rejecting God's fatherly grace, the unbeliever encounters him as a judge. For the believer, hopefully all of you here this morning, for the believer, the knowledge that God is father transforms his view of God as judge. And the knowledge that he is judge fills him with awe that such a God is also his father. God is a righteous judge, but those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ can stand in awe-filled wonder that this God who rightfully judges us extends us fatherly love and grace. God is both judge and father. Have you ever seen those pictures that are actually two pictures in one? 
It's a type of optical illusion, right? I've seen some that is both a picture of a young woman and an old woman all at the same time. I've seen one that is a frog and a horse and many others. Some of you have probably seen them. Some people struggle to see these illusions as the two different pictures once they get the first picture in their mind. Because you see, you have to look at this picture and, and kind of change something in the way you view it to see the two different pictures. Because if you're only fixated on seeing the young woman, you won't see the old woman. If you're only fixated on seeing the frog, you won't see the horse. And many people, some people struggle to see the illusion as two different pictures. Once they get the first set in their mind, fixated in their mind, they can't seem to make the change and see the other depiction. And it's the same with God. God is both father and judge, but are we fixated on him as only one? Do you only view God as your father and forget that he is a righteous judge that rightly hates sin? Or do you only fixate on him as a judge who hates your sin and therefore forget that he is a father who loves you and extends grace and mercy to you? Do we view God as both father and judge? God is a righteous judge, and that is good. We would not want to live in a universe where God was not a righteous judge, where sin would not ultimately be punished, where sin could go on and be ultimately unchecked. The times in human history, recorded human history, where evil and sin has gone unchecked for a period have been horrific. We just have to look at Nazi Germany, communist China, any place where sin and evil have been unchecked for a period of time to see the horrors of what would happen if we did not have a righteous judge who would ultimately judge all evil. But God is also a loving father, and this is amazing news for us because we have been forgiven and have grace extended to us in Jesus Christ, though we deserve to be judged. Now, some people hear this news that God is a righteous judge, and it leads to anxiety, anger, shame, and many other negative emotions. Why? They've forgotten the reality that God is a loving, forgiving Father, and have focused only on Him as a righteous judge. Now, if it's true that God, it is God's role alone to judge, And if we judge others, what have we done? We've tried to take his place. And that is a sinful attitude and action. We are not God. We should never place ourselves in his position as the judge and lawgiver. Some of us are sitting here this morning and we have greatly judged others. We've looked at other individuals and judged them as being unworthy, unfit, or undeserving of God's ultimate salvation. I'm not talking about discernment, evaluation, or helpful criticism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of us, and many of us have done this at times in our life, who look at an individual and in our heart and mind say, that person is not deserving of God's love. That person is going to hell. That person, their sin is so great and horrible. If that's the case, We need to confess and repent before God for having taken his place, and we need to confess to that individual potentially. So in our passage, we see that God alone is the righteous judge, and we see that Jesus calls us not to judge one another. And so on our second point, judgment, we see that Jesus does speak against judging one another. 
And he gives three reasons. First, as we've already seen in our first point, God alone is the righteous judge of all mankind. Second, in verse 2, Jesus explains how when we judge others, we invite judgment on ourselves in return by the same standard that we judge others. How many times have you found yourself judging others for sins which you yourself often commit? I certainly have. Somebody cuts me off in traffic, and I'm, and then I realize that I just did that a couple minutes before. A third reason Jesus gives is that he explains that we are not unbiased or impartial, as we like to think. Let's unpack each of these reasons a little bit. We've discussed how God is the one and only rightful judge already. If he is judge, and we are each his creatures, who are we to judge other people created in God's image? Furthermore, we all stand condemned. This would be like two criminals coming before the court and condemning and judging one another and issuing sentences. It doesn't make sense. How can we, who stand condemned before a righteous God, judge others? That's the culmination of Paul's discussion in Romans 1 to 3. He explains that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All humanity stand before God as having sinfully failed to follow him and love others. Everybody is without excuse. So the first reason we are not to place ourselves in God chooses judge of others and not judge people is because he alone is the righteous judge. Second, Jesus explains how we shouldn't judge others because when we judge people, we open ourselves to being judged by the same standard. And so in verse two, he writes, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In Romans 2, Paul says a similar thing. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The sad reality is that so many of us judge one another for the very same sins that we do. We blame them, but give ourselves a pass. The final reason Jesus says that we are not to judge is because we are rarely unbiased or impartial in our judgments. In verses 3 to 5, Jesus uses a, a humorous explanation. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice that the log is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus uses this humorous anecdote to illustrate the absurdity of our judging others. A fallen, sinful human placing themselves in the place of the one righteous judge of all mankind is ridiculous. He says that it's like a man with a giant log in his eye trying to help a friend take a tiny speck out. It's impossible. It's laughable. It's made even more ridiculous when you look at the word log here. The word log here is actually what is used for the main beam of a building. It could be 40 feet long and five feet around. This isn't just a log that you're throwing on the fire. It's the main beam of a building he's talking about here. It's absolutely absurd that somebody would have this in their eye and actually be able to see anything. Jesus wants us to consider our own sins, our own shortcomings, our own problems to be larger than our neighbors. But we often do the reverse. We consider other people's shortcomings and sins to be the log and us to have the speck in our eye. But Jesus says, no, 
First, evaluate yourself. First, examine your own life. You are the one with the log in your eye, not a speck. The reality is that we cannot change others. I can't go and change any of you. I struggle enough to change myself, even with the Holy Spirit's help. And so what do I have to do with judging one another? Jesus uses this story because we are very observant of others' flaws and blind to our own. Our sin blinds us to our faults, failures, and particular sin struggles. And so we are not to place ourselves in the place of the one righteous judge of all the earth. We are not to judge others in the manner which is reserved for God alone. We're not to imitate God as the judge. Rather, we are to do the reverse, imitate his mercy and grace. Have you all ever seen that one-way glass that they use in police examination rooms? You know, where one side is a mirror and one side you can see through? Hopefully you've only seen it on TV and not in person. It's a type of glass that one side, it looks like a mirror and it's reflecting back at you. The other side, everybody on the other side can see what's going on in the room. Uh, the accused criminal is on the inside and only able to see his own reflection in the glass, while the detectives are on the other side, able to observe everything, his mannerisms as he's waiting, his responses to the interrogation, everything is able to be observed. Too often, we act like we should be on the side of the detectives, seeing through as if we have a clear pane of glass, able to see everything that the other individual is doing but we should view ourselves as being in the interrogation room, seeing the pane of glass as a mirror which reflects on ourself, evaluating ourselves and our own shortcomings first and foremost. It's not our place to judge others as the ultimate lawgiver and judge. That's why James in his book in James chapter 4 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speak evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, James says, he was able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor, James says? We all are under the law. We should not be judging as the lawgiver. So our first priority should be self-examination, self-correction, not correction of others. In reality, as we've already talked about, we struggle to change ourselves, and that should be our priority and focus. Judging others is often rooted in the reality that deep down, we condemn and judge ourselves. And so in frustration, anger, and hate, we turn outward and judge others. Ferguson identifies this in his commentary. He says, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment before the Lord, and instead of experiencing his burning anger, has tasted his infinite mercy. If you have experienced God's infinite mercy, if you have tasted his grace and forgiveness, how can you condemn and judge others? How can we not turn to one another with intense mercy and forgiveness and love when we have been forgiven so much? Judging others can also be a form of boasting. We, like the Pharisee who judged the tax collector, say, thank God I'm not like that person over there. We judge and boast at the same time. 
If Jesus' statement of verse 2 about not judging because you will be judged by the same standard is true, then the reverse is also true. If God has forgiven you so much, then you should forgive others everything that you can. God has been merciful and gracious to us. We should be merciful and gracious to everyone in our lives. That's the lesson of the parable of the two debtors, where Jesus, reclining at table with the Pharisees, had a sinful woman come in and wash his feet with her tears and expensive perfume. And he said, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved so much. But he who is forgiven little loves and forgives little. The reality is that we have been forgiven so, so much. How can we not love and forgive others? If it's true that we are often unbiased, impartial, or blind to ourselves and our own sin and weaknesses, then we should open up to and even invite other people's helpful criticism, right? Other people's correction and viewpoints. Do you cultivate a heart that is open to correction from others? If we are so blind and clueless to our own sins, then we need outside help, right? We do. Do you respond in defensiveness, excuses, or counterattacks when others bring your shortcomings and failures to you, your sin to you? Or do you humbly listen? It's a message I know I need to hear. So it's true that we are not to place ourselves in God's shoes and judge others definitively, but this passage does point to the reality that we are to have some type of discernment. And so let's move to the final point, merciful discernment. This passage does say that we are not to judge one another, but this passage is also often used and taken out of context to make sweeping statements like, don't judge others ever, or who are we to judge what they decide to do with their life? These statements are often made in the context of excusing sin or laziness or other problems. But if we look at verse 6, Jesus specifically actually says for us to make discerning judgments. He says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. How are we to discern who is a dog and a pig in this analogy, and therefore be careful with what we say to one another if we don't use wise discerning judgments? Something more must be going on here than a sweeping prohibition against all judgments, and even within our passage, Jesus points to the reality that we are to use discernment of ourselves and others. We are to correct ourselves first and then potentially correct others. Once we begin to remove that log from our eye, we can, Jesus says, help our brother remove the speck. And so we are to use a type of judgment, but not the judgment that is reserved to God alone. We've already seen in verses 3 to 5 how Jesus points to the need of some type of discerning judgment and helpful criticism of one another for ourselves and for others. And in verse 6, Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In Jesus' day, pigs were unclean. People wouldn't even eat them. Jews were not allowed to eat them. And dogs were wild savage, unclean animals, scavengers. They weren't cute little pets. And so Jesus' assessment here is harsh. And I don't think Jesus is saying we should view others as pigs and dogs, as trash or unworthy, 
but he's teaching us to assess our audience. He's teaching us to assess others. Sometimes people will not want to hear what you have to say, and so we should be careful with our words. It's the light of how Jesus says in verses 3 to 5 that we should use discernment and helpful criticism. He is calling us here to use wise discernment with one another. And it's not just here. There are many biblical passages which call us to merciful, gentle, loving discernment and correction of one another. Let's listen to a few. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. How are we able to discern that a brother or sister has sinned unless we use our, a type of judgment? But it's not a judgment that condemns and excludes. It's a judgment that then goes to the individual and seeks to bring them back into relationship with you and with God the Father. In Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul here tells the church of Galatia to have discernment, a type of judgment of other people's actions. Are they sinning? If they are, go to them in a spirit of gentleness and restore them. But be on your guard, he says, lest you too be tempted. Maybe tempted into that sin, but more likely tempted into a spirit of condemnation and judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. And so you need to use a type of judgment, a discernment to identify what these sins are. But we're not in the place of God. We're not judging those outside of the church. We are helping our brothers who are unrepentant in their sin, is what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5. Dan Dorani helpfully summarizes here. He says, Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. He forbids the condemnation of others. And he goes on to say, Jesus prohibits a critical spirit, but does not forbid all use of the critical faculty. We are not to condemn and judge others and write them off completely. We are to use our judgment and discernment in a helpful manner that seeks to restore brothers and sisters to a relationship with God the Father. In the movie Beautiful Mind, it's a biographical account of mathematician John Nash. Nash was a brilliant man who was unfortunately troubled with voices he heard due to psychological problems. He had a mental illness. The movie recounts his genius and his struggle to fight this mental illness. Over many, many years, he had to learn to discern what was true and not true. And near the end of the movie, Nash, reflecting with somebody in his life, says, I'm not so different from you. We all hear voices. We just have to decide which ones we are going to listen to. 
And Nash incredibly completely changed his life. Despite this mental illness, he was able to discern what was true and not. And eventually, after years of struggle, he won the Nobel Prize. We have different voices competing for our attention. All of you know this. Voices that tell you to follow your own heart, sin, the world, the devil. A voice which is telling us to follow God through his word. To which voice are we going to listen? Are we going to listen to the voice which calls us to be critical and condemn others in judgment? Or are we going to listen to the voice of God through his word and his spirit, which calls us to be merciful and gracious towards others, gently pointing out their faults and helping them come back to God the Father? In a beautiful mind, John Nash, reflecting on the voices he hears, says that they are, all, that they are like all our dreams and our nightmares, We've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. The converse is true. We have to starve them to keep them from influencing us. And this is similar to the process of sanctification, how we become more like Jesus. If we feed our judgmental hearts by allowing ourselves to judge and condemn others, then we're just going to keep doing that more and more, worse and worse. But if we starve our sinful attitudes, our judgment, our condemnation, our hate, while also feeding our grace and mercy and charity towards one another, then we're going to grow in love even for our enemies. We are called to not have a critical, judgmental, condemning attitude toward others. We're called to have a discerning, loving evaluation of ourselves first and others second, to point out their sin, to help them grow, not to beat them down. How do we do this? First, we've seen the priority of evaluating ourselves first, to examining our own heart, especially with regards to the other individual. But after we've done that, it's important to remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. If we become convinced of a brother or sister's personal sin or fault, we are to first go to them in private. That is the number one step. Before you mention it to anyone else, you go to them and you talk to them. Then, if that has no result, then you bring other people involved to help mediate between you. Sadly, this is often the last step we do. The last thing we go to is them in private. First, we go to others and talk about their faults and sins and failures. And that's gossip. As we approach others, we need to hold love, grace, and truth in tension. We need all of these. If we approach them with only truth, we're going to demolish them down and break them by just being blunt and harsh in our evaluation. But if we approach them with only grace, then we may not point out the area of sin which they need to hear about, which they have missed, because we're all blind to ourselves. We need love, grace, and truth combined together. In our passage, we see Jesus speak about placing ourselves in the righteous judge's position. Only God is the right, good, merciful, gracious judge. Who are we to condemn or judge others? We all have been saved by the merciful, gracious, forgiving love of God. We all stand at the foot of the cross on a level playing field. None of us are up there on the podium in first place. We're all equally sinful and condemned. And that should change how we approach one another. We should approach one another with abundant charity, understanding, gentleness, If this is all true, then let us first evaluate ourselves, humbly repent, and seek 
to be transformed. And then let us gently, lovingly help one another. Let us also not forget that we have a great, awesome Savior who has forgiven us and died in our place so that we did not have to take the judgment we all so rightfully deserve. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning so thankful that you are our abundant, good, loving Heavenly Father. Our sin is so great. We rightly deserve your judgment, but you have graciously, mercifully forgiven us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray that when we see how you have been so gracious and merciful to us, that that would prompt in us a heart that is tender towards others, a heart that is quick to forgive any perceived offense, a heart that is quick to not judge, but extend mercy and grace and love, and help us truly seek one another out to try to help one another grow. But let us first and foremost, Lord God, seek to self-reflect and evaluate on our own struggles and sins so that we might be transformed first. We need your help desperately, Lord God. We struggle with our own sins, let alone in helping each other. Holy Spirit, please be present in our lives to bring transformation that we desperately need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.